water, blah, 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 green economy, blah, 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 net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be very, very tough, this summit. And I'm very worried because it, it might go, it might go wrong. We have a moral responsibility, even if we didn't cause it, we would have a moral responsibility to do something about thousands of men, women and children who have lost everything. COP is a massive opportunity, but it is a huge responsibility on the shoulders of world leaders. This is COPcast. Hello. Copcast 10, double figures. Uh, today we are going to start off by focusing on what is actually happening uh, with the negotiation over the draft text, which was published yesterday. And to help me do that, I'm going to have Mel and Fiona from the RSBB team inside the wire, who have had their, their ears to the ground, their fingers on the pulse. Other metaphors may follow. Um, also, you bump into people at COP, it turns out. Uh, and I'm going to bring you a couple of conversations later on with uh, people I hadn't necessarily expected to be speaking to before I came. Uh, first one is uh, former World Time Trial champion Chris Boardman, a uh, cycling legend and now transport campaigner. And uh, also a conversation with ambient music pioneer Brian Eno, who has actually been campaigning for a long time on climate change uh, and I was at an event that he was speaking at managed to grab a very quick conversation with him so that will follow at the very end but first of all to try and unpick what's actually happening in there it's Mel and Fiona Right so we are on what, what I have decided today and we'll see if I can make this name stick to call the Bridge of Pod because we've done all the <laughs> podcast records pretty much here and I am joined by Mel and Fiona who have been inside the wire the whole of uh, the whole of COP, try and get a bit of an insight into what's going on. So I, I suppose that the obvious place starts. We've now had a day or so to digest this draft, right? How are we feeling? Um, well, it depends on what aspect you're looking at, but on the nature side, we're looking cautiously positive. But we know that other colleagues have concerns around some of the other aspects, particularly kind of on the finance side, on the adaptation side, where we're not seeing enough ambition. So, um, and certainly for loss and damage, that's been an area where there's a lot of concern from NGOs that there's not significant support. But on the nature side, we're seeing some pretty good language going in from countries it's not perfect it's maybe not what we would have written ourselves but we're excited that this issue is getting proper airtime now what kind of language are we seeing what kind of things do you think might make its way into there so um, at the moment, there's recognition of the role of protecting ecosystems, which is fantastic. Um, we need to see that um, and linking that to um, national policies. So what countries do themselves to bring ecosystems into their climate decisions, which is really awesome. Um, there has been some discussion around um, the specific terminology that's used, whether it's nature based solutions. Mm-hmm or ecosystem-based approaches, or indeed whether we stay away from those terms altogether and just talk about protecting nature. So um, people have really strongly held views on that uh, because sometimes um, people are concerned that um, these terms are not properly defined so they can be used for greenwashing. So that's where the main kind of contention is. So some good language in there, but um, how the kind of discussions around terms play out is still still to be decided. Yeah, because one of the things I think that's interesting about this is if you were to approach this as somebody who knew nothing about it, right, you might find it quite surprising 
that it's unusual to hear nature talked about in this draft. Right? It would seem like a no-brainer, but, but this is a step forward, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is my first COP, so um, everything I know about COPs has been built off COP26. And for me, it's been quite exciting to walk around the halls of COPs, see nature you know, in, in the pavilions, in marches. Um, and I actually managed to speak to Chris Packham yesterday, which is very exciting. And he was yeah, excited about that. I had a fanboy moment speaking uh, to Chris yeah. Packham. Too. <laughs> um, but we were talking about the fact that you know that is really great. But then, as Mel was saying, the important thing is to get that nature into the formal process as well. Um, and so it's exciting to see that that is feeding in. But of course, there's all, a lot to play for because we've only seen the first draft of this text and we're waiting to see the next text um, come out shortly and um, yeah who knows what will stay and what will stick but we're fighting to keep the good stuff in and, and add more good stuff on nature yeah more good stuff sounds good now, Mel careful how I phrase this this is not your first call it's not <laughs> um, yeah it's possible that I've been to a fair few before so yeah I did actually start in 2008 um, I took six years out when my kids were young but yeah I have been around this process for a wee while so to give people a sense of the of the journey right with nature yeah. there you know of what of, of what, you know, get a bit of context on that yeah so in the past um, nature's been seen as quite a kind of in very kind of technical aspects of the negotiations just around the role that it can play as um, a, they call it a carbon sink so sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and how countries account for that particularly in their forests so it's been very much about the numbers game um, that nature contributes to countries efforts on climate change um, but now I think we've seen a real kind of shift in the narrative um, to um, with recognition that we have a biodiversity crisis as well as a climate crisis um, actually it's being picked up much more in the kind of overarching concepts around COP that we need to see nature protected as a kind of integral part of what we're doing in this space so that's really encouraging. Uh, yeah. Now, The other thing that's kind of dropped over the last kind of 24 hours or so was what was characterised in some quarters as, as, as a surprise agreement, right, between b- between China and the US? Now, obviously, this isn't on nature stuff. This is on the, the the much wider story about emissions. At the beginning of COP, we saw quite a lot of big announcements from big players who mostly who then left, <laughs> leaving the hard work up to everybody else. Do we file this under that, or do you think that this might actually be meaningful? I think we're trying to be cautiously optimistic. Um, we want to welcome good um, good action, and this is has been labelled by some as a d- diplomatic break- breakthrough. And the fact that sort of China didn't sign up to the world leaders. Um, the World Leaders uh, Declaration, Global Leaders Declaration on Forest. Sorry, it's all very confusing. Yeah, it's, a lot, it's just the a word salad, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last week, um, but in the um, in the deal yesterday, uh, US and China together uh, pledged to work together towards um, taking action on deforestation. So that's very exciting from our perspective. Um, and others have been talking about maybe this kind of sort of raising ambition from um, these two key players, who really are key players, um, might mean that others are encouraged to bring more to the table, like the EU, that has been not as strong on ambition as we'd hoped. So, so we're hoping it might turn the tide this week. Cool. Now, I, I don't want to focus on the negative, right? But what keeps you up at night on the nature side of it? You know, in terms of getting what we need between now and the end of COP. What are, what are your worries? What are the things that might block a good deal? Yeah, I think there are two kind of outstanding games in town. One is the the need to link nature really explicitly to our efforts to get to 1.5 alongside rapid fossil fuel phase out. That really explicit connection isn't in there at the moment. So nature isn't the overall mitigation section, which is great. 
but that link to 1.5 isn't there and we really need it to be. So that's our kind of key ask. The other thing is this dynamic around kind of terminology. It's really divisive um, among parties, um, sorry, parties to the convention, which means countries. Um, it's divisive amongst countries, but it's also divisive amongst um, NGOs. Some people see um, real risks um, from using these terms. Some people see real opportunities to bring more people and money to the table. So there's a real spectrum there and that's quite hard to navigate. So I think that's a big challenge for us. Yeah, because yeah, I think it's a challenge in, in another way as well, which is, which is debates around language or discussions around language can be quite, to use another buzzword, right, <laughs> in talking about buzzwords, exclusionary, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, they can, they can for, for people who aren't familiar with it, um, it can seem like angels in the head of a pin type stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, why are you arguing about, like, this kind of terminology? But it's always important to remember that what will come out of this is an agreement... Right, and everybody knows that whether it's like their mobile phone agreement or their or their lease or whatever it is, what's written on the document really matters, right? Yeah, it absolutely does. So we do need to get some really kind of core principles in the text. Um, and so that includes from our side, that includes some safeguards. So whatever term we need, we need to be sure that the outcomes are good for biodiversity, they're in good for indigenous peoples and local communities, um, and they don't kind of create perverse outcomes, which is always a risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I was just going to add something. Yeah, no, go ahead. Just to remember that obviously these cops happen every year. People sort of have seen COP26 very um, sort of on the headlines more than um, they might have before because it's in the UK. But this happens every year and it's sort of an iterative process. And Mel was at the last one where we did get nature into the text. Was it for the first time? It was the first time climate and biodiversity was treated in an integrated way, so that was quite exciting, yeah. Yeah, so, so even if we don't get all of our sort of top asks this time, we're going to keep pushing. And of course, you then have to translate that to action on the ground. So we're going to be pushing past COP26 to make sure we really see delivery. Right, I, I think we've given people a pretty clear idea of what to look out for, actually, what mm-hmm. you're saying. So I suppose my last thing, really, that I'm interested in is, like, are we hopeful? I'm always hopeful. I think I couldn't play in this process if I wasn't hopeful. I think when you have a global problem, you have to have a great big world-scale process, a multilateral UN-led process to deal with it. I don't think there's any other kind of democratic or fair way to do it. So there's loads of flaws in the UN system, but I'm always hopeful that we can work together. And I think the change in science, the increased understanding and public support for this means that we stand a better chance than we ever did. So I try and stay hopeful. Hopeful? I'd say hopeful. And just to add, I spoke to someone yesterday about this and they were saying a lot of people say you can either be a pessimist or an or a, um, optimist. And he said, but actually, you could just be an activist. So we're doing our stuff, okay. trying, to be, trying to be optimistic while we do it, but you know, really getting the job done. Finishing with a snappy slogan. I like it. <laughs> uh, OK, listen, thank you for taking the time to chat to us today. Thanks. Thanks. Now, as I said earlier on, you do bump into people drifting around waiting to do interviews. And one person I bumped into earlier on was cycling legend Chris Boardman. He uh, now spends quite a bit of time looking at issues around transport policy, and that's what he's here to talk about. So I grabbed a quick chat with him earlier. Wandering around COP, you occasionally bump into people, and I bumped into Chris Boardman, <laughs> cycling like legend, right? But also on the days n- of black and white, <laughs> and the day, in the days of rainbow jerseys. Um, uh, so you are here predominantly now 
because you are an advocate for well, cycling. Well, I'm transport commissioner and, yeah, yeah, for yeah. Greater Manchester. So tell us about that. Well, we started with Active Traveller and uh, got four years ago got a plan in place for a 1,800-mile network, uh, essentially to enable people to not have to drive. So we're not going to encourage them. We're going to enable them uh, and give them easy ways to just walk and to just ride bikes everywhere. And that's in place and it's going well. And then the mayor, Andy Burnham, asked me if I would take on the brief of all of transport so we could coordinate uh, buses, trams and trains and give people a, a one tra public transport unit at least as good as London's so, so we can leave the car at home or, God forbid, not have a car because I don't have a car um, either. Um, and so and this, all, this is a climate. <laughs> it's up you. So this is a climate win, but it's also a much bigger well, win, a third isn't of it? Our, our carbon emissions come from transport. Um, and when you know, so I talk specifically about our city region because I have stats for that. But they mirror the whole country. Uh, we have thirty percent of our journeys in cars are less than a kilometre, and that's uh, that, that's two hundred and fifty million car journeys a year of less than a kilometre, which is at the same time hugely embarrassing and really exciting because look how little you have to change. Um, and, and if you want to decarbonise, you will not meet your targets unless you substantially reduce driving and you will only reduce driving if the alternative looks attractive yeah. and as long as you accept that then you have a yardstick to measure everything against does this look can i see this out the car window and does it make me want to get out and if the answer is no then you wasted money can i also suggest right there's a there's another potential win here right from a nature point of view which is that cycling walking active travel green space, nature, these are all things that join up in a way that benefit nice. us in so many ways. Well, it's nice. I mean, it's active travel specifically is it, it gives more than just transport. And that's the wider picture it connects to. It's social cohesion. A third of households in the UK don't even have a car. It's looking after them. It, it is health, you know, active travel doesn't just like not pollute it actually improves health which saves the nhs and the massive burden on them the biggest burden is inactivity induced illnesses yeah. so you, you join it all together and it makes a nice place to live we should be fighting to not do this stuff not fighting to have to do it and i know an issue that is very close to your heart is also making cycling safe for people. well you know I, i'll go back to it because cycle lanes aren't for cyclists They've got nothing to do with cyclists. Cycling lanes are for drivers because they're the ones that have got to get out. So you've got to put yourself in the driving seat of a car and look out the window and say, right, what makes me want to get out? And the first thing people say is I want to feel safe. And, and safe is space, dedicated space, continuous all the way to where I want to go. And that includes the junctions. And if you don't do any bits of that, then do not waste the money. Just give it to the NHS because they're going to need it. But if you can do that, then all the evidence shows time and again that people switch their journeys. Last thing, right? Did you ever think when you were a kid and getting into, like, you know, going out on grotty Sunday mornings doing time trials and dual carriageways and stuff and getting into elite, well, getting into grassroots cycling, that you would end up at a global climate summit advocating for this stuff? No, I never thought I'd be somebody who'd be getting excited about zebra crossings at the mouths of side roads and all of this geeky stuff. But I just kept following a piece of string, you know, the, the bicycle was just, it was my, you know, it was my play. 
and then it was my first form of transport to expand my territory when I was you know in single figures and then it became my uh, my leisure with my friends and then it became my job um, and, and going through that journey you realize how much this machine that has got to be right up there with the printing press in terms of its importance and it and it it's not hyperbole to say it has it has the ability to help save a planet if we let it and if is the big word here and, and that's why I'm here to see whether we can leverage this out the only zero carbon mode of transport to uh, to get the job done. Well listen good luck with everything you're doing. Thank you very much. Okay so bumping into Chris Borman might have been a bit random but I was at an event doing a record the other night and as part of their programme they had a discussion about the role that art can play in helping tackling climate change. And um, on that panel was ambient music pioneer Brian Eno. Uh, and he, he very kindly, he was running away at the end, uh, <laughs> gave me a few minutes of his time, as we said, in a darkened kind of attic space while they were clearing up around us. So apologies for any kind of background noise. But, you know, you get a chance to speak to Brian Eno, you're going to speak to Brian Eno. I'm joined by musical pioneer and climate change campaigner, Brian Eno. Um, that, listening to the, the speech we're giving there, tell us a bit about where, the job that you think art and creativity can do in relation to climate change. Well, I think that pe people can be moved to do things either by fear or by attraction. And we know about the fear side of climate change discussion. You know, we're all terrified. Everyone's terrified. But there's another possibility as well, which is to try to posit other kinds of futures that, that are hopeful, something that we might work towards. And I think one of the things art can do for us is, is to show us how other ways of being might be. You know, if you think about when you read a novel, what are you doing, really? You're reading a fiction. You're reading... A story about another possible world, another possible life. And that's what artists are good at. We're good at making other lives, if you like, other worlds. And, and I think we really need that now. We really need to be aspiring to something. Aside from just thinking we've got to stop climate change, I think we have to say here's an opportunity to rethink our civilization. Because one of the things I thought was interesting about what you were saying is that I initially wondered if you were going to be making a case that art and feeling is important of its own sake, right? But actually it struck me that what you were saying is, is a pragmatic argument, that if we're going to imagine a better future, then we need the creative part of our humanity as much as the scientific part. Yes, I mean, what science does is it models things. We, know, we all know about modelling in science. If you want to build a plane or a bridge, you build a model first and see how the model behaves. But actually that's what art does as well. I think art models other ways of being, other worlds that we could live in, other kinds of relationships we could have. And art says to us, what do you feel about those? Imagine a world where this person exists and these conditions exist and this happens to them. What do you feel about all of that? So I, I sometimes say science models the world to tell us how it works. Art models the world to tell us how we work, to tell us how we feel about things. And 
of course feelings always get left out of science because they're hard to quantify and they're elusive and we don't know whether we share them you know is my version of red the same as yours is my version of anxiety the same as yours so on and so on so that it tends not it's not quantifiable easily so it doesn't easily fall into the realm of science but in fact uh, more and more it seems to me that feeling is where thinking starts for us. And of course anybody who's spent any time with scientists working in the real world, like the kind of people who are working understand the challenge to our biodiversity and solve it, mm. knows that they're passionate people. Right? Yes. They're people who deeply that, that's what drives them to do these extraordinary things. That's, that's why they became scientists. They, yeah. they, they became scientists because they had feelings about something. And uh, that's why we become artists as well. It all comes out of feelings. You know, if you think about it, most of the big decisions you make in your life are not rational in the sense that you've weighed up all the evidence and sort of added up the pros and cons. They're just feelings that take you, even to the choice of the person you're going to spend your life with. That's a set of feelings as well. So, so I think all of the things we do begin with feelings. And of course, art is the language of feelings. That's where we deal with feelings and where we experience them. And of course, within art, we can experience feelings without having to really live through them. That's the point. You can shut the book. You can leave the cinema. So no matter how intense the feelings are, they aren't real when they're art, but you can still have those feelings. So that's the important thing for me, that it's a kind of play. And playing is where we're allowed to do things. We're allowed to pretend, basically. We live in a pretend world for a little while. And now I have to go. That is, thank you I'm so, so much for doing that. Thank you, thank you. That was Brian Eno. Now, I, I normally make a point, right, when I'm interviewing people for this podcast or anything else, you know, to make an effort to be present in the moment. And, and not be thinking about anything else. It was a bit of a struggle with Brian, you know, because in the back of my head there was a voice just kind of constantly going, you know that he was in Berlin with, like, Iggy and Bowie, and that him and Daniel Lanois basically invented, and, and Robert Fripp, like, invented the guitar sound that eventually, you know, became, like, the Edge's guitar sound, and, and all this kind of stuff. But I think I've just about managed to concentrate on the actual conversation. But... He was in a rush to get away and we're very grateful to him for taking the time to speak to us. I cannot guarantee you any more people who've worked with David Bowie in the podcast as we go through the week, although you never know. Maybe somebody else or maybe one of Tin Machine will turn up, I don't know. Uh, but we will be focusing on what happens uh, behind that fence and uh, what shape this deal is taking. I think it's fair to say from what Mel and Fiona were saying is that we are feeling cautiously positive right now about nature being properly written into that deal but there is still work to be done so I will be back tomorrow to reflect that and if it comes to it we'll be back at the weekend as well anyway thank you for listening for now and goodbye